Um, it's good to see you all again. Uh, this morning we're going to be in uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 56. Um, this is the story of Jesus walking on water, and afterward we, we see a glimpse, a summary of, of uh, Jesus' ministry around uh, the region of uh, Gennesaret. Uh, this directly follows uh, the feeding of the 5,000, which uh, y'all walked through last week. I'm going to start just reading uh, the passage, starting in verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dispersed the crowd. After saying goodbye to them, he went to the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. He saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. As the night was ending, he came to them walking on the sea, for he wanted to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the water, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them, Have courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he went up with them into the boat, and the wind ceased. They were completely astonished because they did not understand about the lobes, but their hearts were hardened. After they had crossed over, they came to, to land at Genesaret and anchored there. As they got out of the boat, people immediately recognized Jesus. They ran through the whole region and began to bring the sick on mats to wherever he was rumored to be. And wherever he would go, into villages, towns, or countryside, they would place the sick in the marketplaces and would ask him if they could just touch the edge of his cloak and all who touched it were healed. Before we even get to Jesus actually walking on the water in this story, uh, we see in verse 46 that he goes off by himself to pray. Now this is right after they finish counting up the leftovers. If you remember the passage uh, y'all, y'all learned about last week, uh, the feeding of the 5,000. So they just gathered all these leftovers. We don't know what exact time of day it was. We know that they started handing out these uh, handing out the food, or, or Jesus started to perform this miracle of feeding 5,000 around the evening time of, of one day. And then we find out that when they're done eating, when they're done piling up all the leftovers, that now immediately Jesus disperses the crowd uh, and he goes off alone. Yeah, and we know from John chapter 6 that the crowd was so baffled and amazed at what he had done that they wanted to make him king of Israel. And so this is part of the reason he dispersed the crowd, because he didn't want that. It wasn't time yet. Yeah, one of the reasons Jesus dispersed the crowd was to avoid an attempt to forcefully take him and make him king. But he didn't just go away um, to be away from this crowd, to avoid a riot. If that were the case, um, if he only wanted to avoid being kidnapped, he could have easily slipped away, slipped through the crowd just like he did, I forget where it is, it's in Luke. I think it's the only passage, it's in Luke, where Luke 4. Where, um, where Jesus is re- rejected in his hometown in Nazareth in the synagogue after he preaches, and they, they, they're about to throw him off a cliff, and he just passes through the crowd. He could have easily done that here, but instead he disperses the crowd so that he won't, they won't force him to be king. And he goes off alone to pray. Jesus dispersed the crowd and sent his disciples ahead of him so that he could be alone with his Father in prayer. And despite people around him eager to give him praise, 
despite the importance of the message he was preaching across the region, despite all the physical healing he could have been doing instead of praying on this mountain, Jesus prioritized silence and solitude and prayer with his Father. How often do we choose to do anything but pray? And yet Jesus here is exemplifying uh, a dependent servant of, of God his Father. It's easy for us to fall into thinking that prayer isn't an efficient use of time. Uh, I know for me at least uh, that, it, that, it's, that it isn't efficient or, or effective or, or productive. It's not a productive thing to do maybe is, is, is what I've convinced myself. And the reason we think that is because we think our productivity in ministry depends on our own efforts, on our own competence. When we recognize that our dependence on God is, is true, that, that we are wholly, utterly dependent on God for any effectiveness or productivity or any fruit of the Spirit, we are more likely to go to Him in prayer, overflowing with gratitude and thanksgiving and asking for wisdom asking for relief, asking for strength uh, in the midst of those, of those trials. We are foolish if we think we know better than Jesus how to be faithful ministers of the gospel. Jesus was the epitome of a faithful minister of the gospel. It was his gospel that, that, they were, that he was proclaiming and doing miracles and, and he, healing and um, and yet he still took the time to, to pray alone away from people. Yeah, despite having complete oneness with his father, Jesus often sought him in prayer for extended periods. If anyone had an excuse to skip prayer and put his head down in ministry, healing the sick, exercising demons, and preaching the gospel, it was Jesus. Jesus had that excuse. He was one with his father. He didn't have to go to him in silence and solitude to be with him, but he did anyway, uh, and, he, and he exemplified what dependence looks like. He didn't skip prayer. He intentionally set aside hours and even days to pray. Jesus exemplified what it means to live day-to-day -day in constant dependence and communication with our Father, and we would greatly benefit from setting aside time to be alone in prayer as well. One truth that can greatly help us in our motivation to pray is that God sees our needs before we even bring them to Him. We see this as we continue to look at the passage in Mark. In verse 48 it says that Jesus saw them straining in the middle of the lake. And most translations use that word straining there, but the Greek word used there is meant to communicate a great amount of pain. And it's used elsewhere in Mark to talk about how someone is being tormented by a demon, by a demon if a demon is, is in them. And so this is meant to communicate great pain. Yeah, it's, it's meant to communicate some sort of harassment. This is not something you or I would have been able to see from Jesus' point of view. Jesus is up on a mountain off of the sea, and yet he's looking down and he's seeing that they're in great pain, straining at the oars. We, we might have assumed that if we looked down and saw the boat in the middle of the sea facing great wind and, and big waves. But Jesus knew their pain. He saw them. He felt their pain. And he knew that they were being tormented by this wind, by these waves. He knows they are in pain, and he starts to come down to them as they struggle. And since the, since the disciples started across the sea, 
Jesus had time to walk up a mountain, pray for a while up there, for a long time, presumably, and then, he, and then he has time to go back down, all the way back down the mountain, and then walk all the way out to the middle of the sea, where they're about six or seven miles away, at least. In all that time, these men have just been constantly rowing in this, in this sea against the wind. And based on what we can gather in the text, the disciples have likely been rowing against the wind and in heavy waves for at least 16 hours. And they couldn't stop. Otherwise, the wind would have pushed them backwards. Even if they had some sort of rotation going that, that they could swap in and out of, of rowing, you're still sitting there in a, in a small boat that is like going up and down in these huge ways. And this, it's not actually a sea like we think of a sea, like the Caribbean Sea. It's more of a lake. It's a really big lake, the Sea of Galilee. And so it's, but it's big waves that are being pushed out this wind that's coming off the Mediterranean. I can only imagine how exhausted the disciples must have been after rowing for that long. But Jesus saw them being tormented. He he saw them and he was coming to bring them peace in the storm. Now we should notice that it doesn't say that Jesus sprinted down the mountain. It doesn't say that he was in a rush. And we know that Jesus is is God in the flesh. And so he he knew when he sent these guys out, that they were, going to, they were going to suffer. Like they were, they were about to go through a, a hard thing in, in, in rowing through the storm. And yet he sent them out anyway. And so what we see here is, is Jesus has his own timing, even in our struggling. And we can trust him in that. And I can talk, I'll talk more about why we can trust him in that. Yeah, Jesus knew that they were going to struggle even before he sent them out on their own. And he didn't go down to them as quickly as he could have, even after he decided decided to head down. So he, he started heading down, and it says he walked on the water. It didn't say he, he was running on the water toward them. And it, So what are we to make of this? When our earthly fathers don't come to our rescue, it's because of their sinful human nature. Our earthly fathers are not perfect, but our heavenly Father knows our needs, and so when He doesn't come to us when we expect Him to or when we would like Him to, we can trust that He knows better than us. Our fathers can be neglectful or forgetful or apathetic. They also, our fathers just simply aren't capable. They aren't capable of knowing our needs at all times in all circumstances. Our earthly fathers aren't all-knowing like God is. But our heavenly Father is dependable in all the ways that our earthly fathers might fail us or already have failed us. God sees all our needs. He feels our pain and He knows what is best for us. So we can trust that just because He doesn't immediately or quickly give us relief, that doesn't mean that He's apathetic. It doesn't mean that He's apathetic. Just because He doesn't come when we expect Him to or when we'd like Him to. Proverbs 17, verse 3 says, uh, it gives us a, a beautiful analogy of a crucible. It says, The crucible is for refining silver, and the furnace is for gold. Otherwise, or sorry, likewise, likewise, uh, the Lord tests hearts. So he's saying in the same way that a crucible refines uh, uh, these precious metals, which is what a crucible does, it melts down these metals to purify them, the Lord tests our heart. And that's the way he uses our suffering. The, the crucible is, is hot and it, and it tests these metals and it, and it melts them down, but it purifies them. 
And that's a beautiful picture of the way God sanctifies us through difficult times. And these disciples were going through a very difficult time out out on the lake. God uses our trials to refine us. Uh, Like a precious metal is purified in a crucible, we are sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We may not be aware of the exact purpose uh, of the specific trial we're going through, but we can trust that God doesn't waste our suffering. There is purpose in all that He does, and we we shouldn't feel a need to figure out what that exact purpose is, or else we're not actually trusting Him. We feel the need to understand all of it. It should be encouraging for us to, to a degree that we don't understand why God does what He does, or allows what He allows. How impressive would God actually be if we could completely understand everything about Him? He wouldn't be nearly as impressive if, if we, as, as finite, uh, incapable human beings, sinful human beings, could understand everything about Him. God says to Isaiah, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. In the midst of tormenting trials, we can remember that His ways are not our ways. And that should be a relief to us. It's a good thing that, that, that we don't understand at times. Here's some other passages. I'm just going to go through a bunch of passages on, on, on uh, suffering. And some of them aren't even about suffering. They're just encouraging if, if we are struggling in, in whatever ways we do. 2 Corinthians 1 Verse 3 and 4, it says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we may be able to comfort those experiencing any trouble in the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Lots of comforts there. Matthew 5, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Psalm 119, verse 50 says, My comfort is... In my suffering is this, your promise preserves my life. You preserve me. John 16, verse 20, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. These promises that are, that are hopeful. John 16, verse 33, I have told you these things, so that in me you, you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Our victory is in Christ, what we just sang. It's not in our own ability to overcome our, our trials. Romans 15, verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Psalm 27, 13 and 14, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. We can be patient in our trials and our suffering. Romans 8, 28, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. And there's my, here's my personal favorite. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm just going to start in verse 8. 
We are experiencing trouble on every side, but we are not crushed. This is Paul talking about the the suffering that the apostles have experienced. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are knocked down, but not destroyed. Always carrying around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our body. For we who are alive are constantly being handed over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our mortal body. As a result, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. But since we have the same spirit of faith as that shown in what has been written, I believe, therefore I spoke, we also believe, therefore we also speak. We do so because we know that the one who raised up Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. For all these things are for your sake, so that the grace that is including more and more people may cause thanksgiving to increase to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not despair, but even if our physical body is wearing away, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction, suffering, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison because we are looking at what can be seen, but at what we are not looking at what can be seen, but what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. The hope that we can have, the hope that we have access to in our suffering goes beyond the things that we can see in this world. The disciples saw Jesus, they were with him, and it wasn't enough for them to believe. They were still terrified. They were still struggling and terrified when Jesus showed up. I just want to clarify, there's no need for us to feel like we need to manufacture trials so that God will sanctify us through, through hard times. Um, we will encounter storms no matter what, but we can know and trust that He is there with us in the worst of them and that He is using them for our good and His glory. And that's the point. When Jesus finally reaches the disciples rowing in the boat, it says in verse 48 that he wanted to pass by them. You might have noticed that and, and had a question in your head, but what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus wanted to pass by them? Didn't he come out there to rescue them? Why would he intend on walking right by the disciples as they are strained at the oars, as they are straining? This phrase likely does not mean that Jesus intended to walk past them. It probably refers to a couple of Old Testament passages that describe God's presence uh, in, the sa- in the same sort of way. And uh, There are two examples, uh, at least two examples of this. In Exodus 33, verses 19 through 23, um, and 1 Kings 19, verses 11 through 13, Moses and Elijah both encounter the presence of God passing by, it says, passing by, but, lost my place, yeah, they, they encountered him passing by, but they are not able to look at God face to face in those passages. It, it, it's a presence of God that they aren't able to experience fully. He's passing by. Yeah, so this is, uh, it's meant to be compared to how the disciples are able to commune with God, commune with the Son of God made flesh. And when Jesus passes by the disciples, they are able to experience God's presence in a much more intimate way. 
than, than, than Moses and Elijah did. And, and that's through Jesus Christ. Like him, him being God made flesh, walking next to them in the water. On the water is what it says. But when the disciples see Jesus walking on the water, they don't recognize him. Instead of Jesus' presence bringing them comfort, they are initially terrified because they think they're seeing a ghost. Uh, To put them at ease, Jesus says, have courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And that phrase, it is I, used here, is is the Greek translation for I am. Like, like, Like what God says out of the burning bush to Moses. I am. He's, he's announcing that he is God, basically. This is a divine pronouncement. I am God. God is here with you. Yeah, in the same way that God greeted Moses from the burning bush, Jesus is greeting his disciples in that same way, just translated to Greek from Hebrew. This isn't just Jesus saying, hey guys, calm down. It's your friend Jesus here. Have courage. It's your your friend and teacher, Jesus. Jesus is saying, have courage. I am the Son of God. I carry the power, the same power and authority as my Father who revealed Himself to Moses from the burning bush. I am that same God. I have His power, His authority. He has given it to me. So don't be afraid. And the, the disciples would have understood all of that, but it says their hearts were hardened. It says that at the end of that, that paragraph, it might not break down as a paragraph in your book, but it, yeah, at the end of that little uh, this story of the walk in water, it says their hearts were hardened. And that's why they were so astonished at the end, because they, didn't, they still didn't understand who God is, why he was a, why, who, who Jesus is, why he was able to walk on the water, uh, why the storm calmed. They, they still don't understand. They didn't, they didn't get it. Even after Jesus gets up into the boat and calms the storm, the disciples still don't understand who he is, or how he carries such power and authority. At first glance, it might seem a little strange that Mark says they were astonished because they didn't understand about the loaves, referring to the 5,000. But why, why, is, why are we still talking about the loaves? Why are we still talking about the feeding of 5,000? Weren't they astonished because they didn't understand what Jesus just said? And, and what this is referring to is, that, is the fact that the feeding of the 5,000 was also like it was also a divine pronouncement. It was Jesus saying, "I am God." It's it's a reference back to when God fed the Israelites when they were wandering in the wilderness. In that same way, Jesus now fed the five thousand through this miracle, and He made these these fish and these loaves of bread appear out of nowhere. In the same way, God provided for His people in the wilderness so they wouldn't starve. He's, he's saying, I am the same God. I am the same God. I am the, I am the promised Messiah to come. And so they didn't, if, if, they would have, if the disciples would have understood that sign, if they had understood that, that this sign is, is referring back to God, this is the same thing God did for the Israelites. If they had understood that, then they would have said, oh, this, this is the promised one to come. But they didn't get it, and so now they, they don't get this either. They don't get that, that Jesus is saying, I am God. It is I. I am the I am. It is good for us to remember that the disciples saw the miracles Jesus performed and even heard him basically announce that he is God made flesh, yet they still didn't understand who God really was, who Jesus really was. I keep saying who Jesus really was. They didn't understand who he was. 
They didn't understand how he had the power that he had, even though he was telling them, showing them. This is the second time Jesus has calmed a storm. The first time, earlier in Mark, I think chapter 4, it says that the disciples were astonished and they were asking themselves, who is this man? And Jesus didn't answer them. He didn't answer them. He says, it says that they were astonished and they were wondering who he was, but they didn't know. In this, in this parallel passage where Jesus calms the storm after walking on the water, they were wondering the same thing, but Jesus has told them. He says, it is I. I am God. I am. I am the I am. And they still don't get it. By contrast, we see in, uh, as we continue this passage in verse 54, that when Jesus and the disciples arrived on land on the other side of the lake, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, we see that many people immediately recognized Jesus. And in verse 45, it says they ran toward him with their needs, with their physical needs, ailments, whatever. And it was because they knew he had great power. Uh, These people didn't understand exactly who God was, uh, just like the disciples didn't. But we're meant to see a parallel here uh, in that these people were desperate and they were coming. And and they knew that 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 Jesus had something that they needed. And the disciples, we can clearly see there that they were just missing it. They believed that he could do miracles, so they went to him in confidence that he would do uh, something to help them because he was kind. They were relying on his kindness. We can run to our Father in the same way. In the midst of our trials, we can be waiting expectantly for him to step in and carry us through them. And and it it might not be the timing that we expect, but he will be there for us. He is with us. We can learn a lot from how the disciples hardness of heart keeps them from understanding who Jesus really is. We can't guarantee that anyone will be saved through hearing any particular teaching or through witnessing any particular miracle. The disciples heard all the miracles and it took them a long time to understand. They saw the miracles, they heard all the messages, they didn't get it for a long time. Only God can save. If a person's heart is hard, they will not believe that they need Jesus Christ. In the same way, we who are believers will not grow in our faith if our hearts have been hardened. If we feel as though we have arrived in any, in any sort of way, that we have achieved holiness, that we've achieved a certain point that will get us into heaven and then we can just plateau from there. If we are content with people's perceptions of us, and no longer feel a need to actually pursue Christ and repent of our sin, then our hearts are hard. That's what hardness of heart means. In this state, we can't perceive what the Holy Spirit is trying to teach us because we are not living in communion with Jesus Christ. We are not living in a state of dependence. We must pray that God would soften our hearts so that we can be perceptive when the Holy Spirit is trying to convict us of sin. If we don't pay attention with open hearts and minds, we'll miss the point in the same way the disciples did on the Sea of Galilee. We'll miss it all. Let's let's analyze ourselves, analyze our lives, respond to the the way that God has called us to, to respond, respond to the gospel, the hope that is in Jesus Christ, And if we feel like we've plateaued, that we haven't 
drawn any closer to him, then we're falling away. 